Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey folks, this is Tom Castles from Broken Healthcare. That's the podcast that strives to examine, diagnose, and propose a treatment plan for our ailing healthcare system. Now, in this podcast, we cover just about everything that causes people pain and suffering, and we do it through these really deep character dives and immersive stories. So when you've finished this episode of Hit Like a Girl, come check us out at Broken Healthcare. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're reconnecting with Dr. Aditi Joshi, who we first met back in 2019 about telehealth. She's the medical director at Jeff Connect, an assistant professor at Thomas Jefferson University. But a lot has changed in telehealth in the world since then. We learned a lot in our conversation and hope you will too. Let's get started. Thank you for having me back. It's funny, right? It was a year ago. And I will say that it was probably exactly a year later that things seemed to change a lot for us in Philly in a way that we saw. Because it was that week, you know, the week that HIMSS got canceled that Philadelphia started to see an increase in cases. Luckily, everything was canceled, which was the right thing to do, but it ended up being that I was in Philadelphia and I wasn't working clinically because I had all this time off for all these conferences that got canceled. So I just remember that week, you know, we just started realizing that, you know, New York had already had their cases and they were starting to see a huge increase. And we're like, well, Philadelphia is, you know, 80 miles south. So we have to plan for this as well. And I just remember it was the week of March 9th and March 10th. We just had suddenly all of a sudden the doctor who was working was seeing more patients than normal, manageable, but definitely a significant increase. And then, you know, we had a huge public outreach education. Our on-site clinics, our urgent cares, our ERs were being instructed as a part of like an enterprise-wide intervention for everyone to call telehealth first, our Jeff Connect program specifically for Jefferson clinics, et cetera, instead of coming in. And so to get counseling and screening and evaluation, because a lot of them had, you know, the, a lot of clinics were converting to telehealth in general. So we saw a huge uptick. And then that Friday, 
which I think was a 13, it was incredible how many patients we saw. We went up by about tenfold from our normal. And so it was just that week was the, the, that 10 days was really just a scramble. It seems like it was a blur looking back because I was, it was like 14, 16 hour days. Uh, I was either jumping on calls to help out the doctor. I was trying to recruit some of my other colleagues in the ER to help as well. But that wasn't a long-term plan. So we had to do a whole host of things, one of which included training a bunch of other physicians and clinicians around the hospital to do telehealth, to do this type of telehealth. And so I remember like on a very busy 72 hours, I did a number of training videos. I've made about like 150 accounts. We created tip sheets and like a centralized database for our COVID screening, how to do telehealth, you know, different like troubleshooting. Here was our reporting. Here was our how you do it. Here's access to our training videos. This was our physical exam videos. A whole background we had to create in a very short amount of time. And then that Sunday, we were successfully got a number of internal medicine doctors, family practice doctors online to help. And probably the next day was our busiest day. It was like 250 people. And so it was like an incredible time of just trying to get and scrambling to get this up online because we knew that it would be helpful. And it was successful in the manner because we were able to implement it really quickly and onboard. So that was that first week, I remember. And at that time, we noticed that there was a decrease in the amount of people coming in person. The urgent cares and ERs were starting to have decreased amount of patients, but our telehealth had a huge increase in volume. What has the reception been like to the doctors that weren't using it before? You said you made about 150 accounts for physicians and other healthcare professionals to deliver telemedicine through Jeff Connect, which you've led the charge on. What has the reception been like and kind of this, you know, drinking from the fire hose for them? And how have you seen that change just in the last, you know, six to eight weeks? And what has it been like for patients? Right. So, I mean, when we spoke last, part of what works frustration or comment was is that telehealth has doesn't have a lot of engagement. People are apprehensive about using it, both on patients and provider side. Now being forced to use it, we have noted a, a whole host of things. One, people want to use it because they know it's the right thing to do in this situation. But because they've had to use it, a lot of the clinicians recognize how it can be used. And now they're like, oh, it's not nearly as difficult as I thought. I can connect with my patients. I can get information for what the right next step is. I can do a physical exam enough to know what that next step will be. So they're recognizing it because, again, we gave them the tips how to do it, but then they're also just doing it and being thrown into it. And so it's easier to recognize for them. Being able to also convert some of their other types of visits to telehealth, and we have an entire team that supports them for that, is also making them understand how other ways that they can use it even after this pandemic is over. So we've seen that recognition happen in clinicians. When this, you know, dies down, will they go back to some of their on-site visits? Of course, but there's now going to be a better understanding of how they can use telehealth for their own practices. As far as patients, you know, like I mentioned, a whole host of them are afraid of coming in person. And so they just want to know, do I need to go to the ER or not? Do I need to go to the urgent care? And so I remember I was working one night and I had a mother call about her child She's like, oh, well, this you know, event happened and I looked online and I got really scared. She's like, normally I'd go to the ER, uh, but I wanted to check because I don't want to do that if I don't have to. And I told her, I was like, this isn't actually something that happens in children. So first of all, no, you don't have to go to the ER. 
not for what you're worried about. And so even situations like that, in the future now, that mother might be like, well, maybe I should call first and see if this is something I need to do rather than having to run to the ear like I would normally. So there might be even more recognition of that aside and outside of COVID screening. As far as the COVID screening, I think a lot of people now know that for somebody's complaints or counseling or what do I do in this situation for my healthcare, they now have an avenue to go to. What will end up happening is likely that that demand will continue or the demand, it'll probably decrease because people won't be as worried about COVID-19. But now they'll be like, well, maybe I do want this for other types of visits. So because both groups of people, both clinicians and patients are using it in an increased fashion, there's going to be the ability to have both of them use it in the future and understand what they can use it in the future, right? Because I think in general, as everybody knows in most startups, it's always a chicken and the egg. How do you get engagement from uh, you know, users as well as like the uh, people who are selling their services, or in this case, giving their services? And in this case, we did it both at the same time. You know, there's a lot now, more than ever, there's a lot of information about telehealth out there. And we, in our own world, have been fielding some questions where people are like, I don't know how to cut through the noise and get to what it is I actually need. So for people that are just starting down this path, what recommendation do you have for them to get started but on the right foot? That's a great question. And I will tell you, there is a lot of noise out there right now. Just looking at the amount that you can search for on telehealth right now is incredible. So, you know, obviously initially we were just really very focused on just getting our program up and running. So we couldn't even ourselves field a lot of these questions. But now that we've understood a little bit of what's needed, what I think is probably helpful for anybody who wants to do it is in general, understand what your use case is. So what is it that you're actually going to use it for? Are you using it for converting your clinic visits to telehealth? Are you doing it for COVID screening? Are you doing it because you just want extra income and you're not really starting to run a new program, but you have this extra time and want to help? Whatever it is, you just have to understand what it is that you want to do. And then, you know, for people who need a new platform, there are some platforms that are easily integrated or implemented that are out there that people can find. And so they can put that within their systems into their EMR and they could allow for their billing. I would suggest definitely doing one of those. You do not want to go through and create a whole new process. And then, of course, understanding how you're going to use this technology, how you're going to get it to patients, how the processes are going to work. Because if you're going to set up a program and there isn't actually a team that's there to get patients signed up for patients to understand how to use it, to get doctors to know how to use it as well, it will fail. And then last is having people understand what they're offering these services for. So if you're going to do a telehealth visit, you understand your use case, but you want to make sure the patient understands that use case and that you're able to deliver what that care is going to be. And so, of course, this can change depending on what you're looking for, but those broad angles need to happen. It is incredibly important to know that the technology is, is necessary and important, but that's not really generally what the rate limiting step is. It's really getting people to understand how they're using their telehealth and doing an effective medical encounter and getting the information they need, getting the next step they need, getting whatever clinical environment that they are looking for, for their patients as well as themselves. I like the way you highlight the use case, but all of the aspects of that use case, not just the effective clinical encounter, but you know, we have people that aren't, we've heard a couple of horror stories where maybe they weren't really thoughtful and the doctor came out to the front desk to say, where's my patient, Mrs. Smith? And they said, 
uh, oh, it's a telehealth visit. I, I transferred it to your office. And they just, they didn't even have a way to indicate that it was a telehealth encounter. So I think end-to-end and an integrated solution to make life easy is important, but that all begins with understanding those long and short-term strategic goals of, of what that use will be. Dr. Joshi, we exactly. know that CMS and commercial payers, in most cases following suit, you know, CMS brought parity payment to pay that telehealth visit at least for the meanwhile, during the pandemic and this public health emergency, payment parity on telehealth visits for physicians and healthcare professionals under some expanded guidelines. Since the pandemic has been a catalyst for this adoption, do you think that it will forge that policy going forward? Or do you think CMS will take that back once this is over? Because it's, it's great that it's this convenient and this easy, even beyond pandemic needs. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think the policy will stick? I certainly hope so. But you're obviously asking, do I think it will? I do, but not because I think that our incentives in our healthcare system support that. But what I think is going to happen is that this pandemic is going to last longer than we think, right? So obviously it comes in waves until we have real treatment or real vaccine. This virus is still out there, right? So there's still going to be a need to think about how we isolate or how do we go through the environment a little bit differently until we actually have it under control, right? Even places and countries that have reopened, they're not doing it in the same manner exactly as they had prior. That's not really what's happening. So because of that, it's because it's going to be a longer standing issue that we're going to be dealing with within our healthcare system. This is also going to continue to be a time where telehealth is going to be highlighted as a potential modality for certain types of business. Because I think that's going to continue, people are going to get used to it. It's like anything, right? It's very hard if you know, it's very hard to take things away as opposed to add them. So I think it's it's going to be harder to take something away that people have now gotten used to, have now seen the value for. And eventually it's going to lead to better value-based care. We'll be able to use it for more preventative care. That has to be obviously a priority for the healthcare system. But, you know, as we see in this pandemic situation, in this extreme circumstance, that is exactly what we need, public health measures and preventative care. And that is really going to make the biggest difference. This is especially true in a situation where we don't have the treatment or the treatment is supportive, as we call it, and we're still working through other things we can do. This is when you see very poignantly where this is important. And because of that, I don't think that they'll be able to really go fully back because they'll understand that this is something that really helped. And people were using it not even just for COVID screening, but for other types of care. And that is very difficult to go back. Yeah, I think to your point, your example of the mother calling instead of going to the emergency room or urgent care, I think that it will, the system will start to see reductions in different in costs of like if people are using the system in a smarter way, then like the overall, the value of telehealth is bigger in the long term. Now, with the volume of telehealth increasing so much, I imagine that it's a wonderful thing for what it is, but it also could bring up additional challenges or problems that maybe weren't at the forefront before. Are there any obstacles or things that have been highlighted that are issues that could be solved that maybe we weren't aware of even a year ago based on the sheer number of people that are using it now? We recognize now where the gaps in healthcare are, right? And this isn't just true for the telehealth portion, but this is true in all situations, right? Where 
uh, what people refer to what is the social determinants of health, this is where the gaps are seen, whether it's based on socioeconomic status, race, gender, you see the gaps in what care is. For telehealth specifically, this is exactly when you see marginalized groups who don't have access to technology. They're not able to access this type of care, this type of screening, this type of evaluation. So they are unfortunately having to go into places, right? They have to go onto the clinics. They have to go to the ERs to get evaluated, maybe putting themselves at risk, maybe putting others at risk, but increasing the risk of exposure, assuming they're not critical. So this is exactly where you see people who have had this access technology where, you know, the anyone who is of a social, certain socioeconomic status getting better access to healthcare, getting healthier as opposed to equitably improving healthcare access for all. So we are seeing that, right? So what do we do when we need to treat some of those? We don't have that set up yet, right? We don't have the thought process of how we did that. Yes, everyone talked about it, but there wasn't enough of an engagement with telehealth to even try to fix it. We didn't even have enough uh, thought process. And now we do. So now we can try and think of how are we going to make this equitable? How do we get access? So, you know, at Jefferson, there's a group that, a Project Hope that helped with homeless access and they would get them telehealth visits, right? That's, you know, in this situation, like what will we do in the future to help out these marginalized groups? Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com is a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly, so we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on Patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on Patreon.com, and let's make something amazing together. You know, I think we want to think that everyone is walking around with, you know, a a recent version of an iPhone and can easily connect and do these Mm -hmm. things. And for a myriad of different reasons, cannot. You have great Wi-Fi connection, right? We have the camera quality is there so we can visualize somebody. Um, When you think about a wish to fix that, if money wasn't an object, time wasn't an object, is there an ideal solution? that is befitting to even pandemic-like circumstances, what would you do if you could do anything to fix that? I mean, if we're really going to fix everything, I would try to fix the root cause of all these social determinants of health. Like, why is homelessness a problem? Why are certain neighborhoods at higher risk of certain diseases? I mean, that would be the real answer to the question. But I know you're asking me about how do we get tech or some of the access to this care to that area. And, you know, there's options, right? So, you know, there has been... An idea of expanding Wi-Fi connection to certain areas, or you can create hubs where people who may not have access to the technology 
can come in and there's somebody to help them through it, whether it's through language or tech literacy or just even not having the right connection, but there's some place that they can go to get that. And it's close enough, right? So we have so many pharmacies everywhere where somebody could have it in a pharmacy and they could have access to that care there. There's options for just even getting people, maybe even a device that would be just even have that type of option where they could take care of themselves, monitor their own healthcare that way. Uh, that would be incredible, right? So they have the devices with them so they can actually, even if they don't need a doctor's visit, they can actually have the ability to take care of themselves, have a little bit more understanding of where their health lies and what they need to look out for. Because I think giving people that power back of their healthcare is actually going to make a bigger difference to them than it is for us to dictate to them, right? So they can understand exactly what we're looking for because they have it at their fingertips as opposed to having to come to our clinics or our ERs and us looking at a computer at them instead of them being engaged with it. And if we can do that, if we can create that engagement, that will actually help significantly more as well. You mentioned earlier the homeless population and even when you had, you had said the hubs or possible hubs, like what, what initially came to my mind is the public library. Like the homeless folks in particular are already using that place as a, oftentimes where they check the internet or look for jobs or, you know, just have access to additional information. Can you tell us about what was the project that you said, the HOPE project? What is going on with, what is that all about? What are you guys doing with that? I'll be perfectly honest. I don't run that project, but I do know what their point is, is to try to get some of the homeless population into, because that's what they do, they take care of that. And they are trying to get them access to healthcare. It was just one small project to try to fix this issue. The other thing that's happened is that Philly has set up a, hotel for the homeless population, but they have to be COVID-19 negative. So we'll see them in the emergency room. We'll test them so they can actually isolate themselves in that way so that they're not on the street and being exposed. So there are some ways that it's trying to help. But again, it's because they don't have the full bandwidth to take care of it right now. We're trying to just do our best. And I think if we were talking about a longer term solution, it would actually require really thinking about how you get people health care, how you take care of their issues that are causing them to have be maybe in these like marginalized groups, whether whatever it is also talking about the homeless population, right? Then where is it that we can help? Do we provide housing with connection that would be give them that access to care? Because I think most studies show that if you do that, it actually saves the healthcare system money as opposed to having them living on the street. So I think that there's some opening for that, but no, I can't give you too many details about that, but I knew I do know that that was one of their outreaches. Understood. It's just that really interesting, the idea of it. Now, we ask everybody, and especially during this time, it's such a wild time and there's it is like drinking from the, hot, the fire hose. How are you staying up to date? Where do you keep up with current events and making sure that you guys are on your game and that you have the information that you need to do a great job? Sure. So one of the benefits of working at a huge academic center is that we have entire teams doing this. So for example, for the emergency room where I also obviously work in, there is an entire task force that works on this. Some part of it because I work on the telemedicine portion, but uh, we have an incredible group that basically comes together and decides, okay, based on the enterprise guidelines, based on uh, current studies and what we know about the disease, what are we going to do for our patients? So they create evidence-based screening protocols and um, guidelines for treatment and figuring out where the best place for everyone to be staffed is. 
So that's a lot of where we get it. I also check the CDC website. I think that's been a great place to go for information. What I am not doing is listening to the news cycle because I don't find it helpful. I think it also increases anxiety to patients. You know, if you're on Twitter, which I try to be at least once a day, is just looking at like what the highlight it is. So I understand where patients are coming from, but I try not to engage with that. So one thing, for example, like a recent story about ingesting bleach, that's going to cause us a lot of problems in the ER if people believe that, right? Because bleach obviously should not be drunk. But the whole idea of like patients reading about this, I do want to know it. So I understand where people are getting their information. But I will straight up tell my patients a lot of times, I was like, listen, if you're not getting information from some of these places that have real science backed up for it, it's going to increase your anxiety. You may not want to listen to it. This is probably not helping you. And so why don't you listen to this or read this instead to understand what really is going on? And I will try to explain it as well, because obviously not everybody wants to sit and read and like look up definitions based on like what source it is. But I will explain it to them best I can based on what we know that day. Dr. Joshi, you have been doing telemedicine for a long time. You're a clinical leader, Jefferson. You are an academic leader. What is your overall feeling about the current state of telehealth, the catalyst that the pandemic's been for adoption? What are you most excited about, you know, fortunately and unfortunately during this unique time? Is it concerns telehealth? I mean, if you had told me at the beginning of the year, this was the year that the tipping point happened and in this manner for telemedicine, I mean, no one would believe you. However, saying that, it has made something that we have believed in for years and done for years finally come to the forefront. And now a lot of people now recognize its value. So it's exciting in that manner. Obviously, nobody wanted a pandemic for that to happen, right? The negative portion of it. But it is exciting and it's been fascinating for me personally just to see, like you're saying, all of the discussions about telehealth and how do we do it? What do we do? And, you know, right now people are just desperate for information and they're desperate to start their programs. So they're doing it. And what I think is going to happen is that right now people are doing it and they're getting it done. And so there's going to be this feeling that there's a ton of people who are extra telemedicine or they know what they're doing. But what's going to end up happening is a realization that there's more parts to it that we need to actually standardize or create quality. So I think the next big influx is going to be, well, how do we do that? How do we create and continue this type of program now that we've started it, now that we know what we're doing, sort of like, what is it that really is going to matter for the future? And that I think is going to be the next exciting part because that's exactly what we've been working toward. That's what we do. We you know, we train, we do research, we understand some of the broader issues that come up when you're either trying to implement implement a program or create a program or try to get clinicians to use it or you're trying to get patients to use it. We have like a deep understanding of a lot of those issues. So it's going to be fascinating for the next step in trying to spread that message to everybody else and spread how we would help you be able to do that. So that's going to be exciting also. And just the fact that now, we have this new, like just telehealth, for example, and I've always said this, it's just a modality, right? You're just using a video to do a medical encounter, but that's going to be the next step in how we just think about healthcare because five years from now, right? This is just the first thing. We're just doing acute care screening, let's say, or primary care, whatever it is that people are doing. But in five years, you know, this will expand to even more hospital at home, healthcare at home, because it's just going to open up the box of what we can think about doing healthcare in the future. 
And that is going to be the exciting part, finally being able to create that because there's going to be a real demand for it. I want to say, you know, just one small piece of that. Dr. Joshi was kind enough to share with our, our sister brand, Chirpy Bird Health IT, a coupon book code, which is Chirpy Jefferson, to mm-hmm. go to cme.jefferson.edu. And for physicians that are looking to conduct a physical exam via telehealth, they have a great class. It's half off, so it's normally $100, just 50 bucks. And I have to say that one of the most interesting but also great compliments we received was from a physician who took the class and he's watching it and he was thinking to himself, well, of course I would do that. Of course I would do that. And he was really perplexed on how to do this well. And he called back the next day to say that he took everything he learned in that class and implemented it in his visit. So he was watching it thinking he could do that, but it was really this class that was a catalyst for him in ambulatory care to serve his patients. So thank you for sharing that with Dr. Joshi and making that happen. That's fantastic. I will say that I think that's very true because people were like, of course, of course, of course. And thank you for giving me that feedback. That's great. Quite a few people have said the same thing where they're like, oh, I thought this is obvious. But then they were like, well, no. Then I started using it. And then I realized, no, I realized I did that from that course. And I just want to also clarify that we actually, the CME also, nurses can also get CME from that, CME, excuse me. And so nurse practitioners or RNs who want to take it also can get that credit. And then anybody who just wants to take it just to learn about it can obviously do it as well. And yes, we created that code because we want everyone to have as much access as we can. So thank you for sharing it also too. We are happy to, and we are so happy that that we have had a chance to catch up with you again. So one way to get in touch with you, of course, is through Thomas Jefferson University. But if somebody wanted to follow you online or perhaps work with you, if that's even, if you have any bandwidth, how would they do that? How would they get in touch? So yes, you can follow me on Twitter. That's usually where I just post. It's mostly telehealth stuff at Dr. A-D-I-T-I-J-O-S-H-I. You can also email me at Jefferson if people have any questions, I'm always happy to. I, I try to get through my email inbox every day. It's my uh, first name dot last name at jefferson.edu. As far as research capacity, there's going to be a huge need for it, how we educate, how we also train. And so I do a lot of that kind of research and courses at Jefferson. And we will be creating certainly more of that. As of now, I don't have any research openings per se, but there's always the ability for the future for people who want to come and learn. We host electives in for medical students as well as excuse me, uh, residents, and we do have a fellowship available, and then we do more courses for people who just want to learn about it. There is a whole host and a wealth of information here that we have, and we want to share with everybody. And so you can go to the CME site. It's you know conducting an effective physical exam for telemedicine. If you if you check put in Jefferson physical exam and telemedicine, you'll find it. And then if you go to our uh, Jeff Connect page, jeffconnect.edu, you can also find out some more information about our program too. Dr. Joshi, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us during this busy time about the continued evolution of telehealth and your piece of that puzzle. So critical for our listeners to hear this update. And we just thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are always great. And Hope everyone stays safe and um, yeah, you don't have to do ever in the ER. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. 
You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon.